So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. So, Andre, this past week, former BC Premier Ujjal Desange got a lot of headlines in the country. He wrote a blog post that got republished in the National Post, and his argument was, white men in Canada are being silenced. Yes, and he went on CBC to talk about why he believes that white men are being silenced. And if I recall correctly, you had a couple of words to say about that, too. Sure. Now, Desange's argument is that when it comes to talking about difficult issues like racism, tolerance, religion. White people, especially men, are afraid to speak because someone is going to tell them that they are being racist or discriminatory. I I feel so bad for you guys. Now, sure, Andre, that might be silly to some people, but we actually reached out to some of our listeners who agree with this statement that white men are actually having a hard time engaging in Canada's political conversations. Let's hear it. Once a white person says the wrong thing, it's so much worse than anything else. Like, I saw recently something where someone mixed up, you know, Aziz Ansari with Danny Pudi. You know, there's not a lot of um, East Indian comedians on television. And a newscaster, I think, mixed up one with the other and everyone jumped on him and said, oh, that's so racist. How could you get these two things mixed up? But it's just an honest mistake. You know, I mean, my dad sometimes gets me and my brother mixed up, right? It's, It's a simple mistake to make. But somehow when that simple mistake comes from a white person, it's demonified so much more heavily, right? Now, somebody who's talked a lot about this notion, which is sometimes called political correctness, is the editor of a major magazine in Canada. We decided to reach out to him for this program and ask what his feelings are on Desange's thesis. We also wanted to hear from somebody who I believe belongs to a demographic that is actually silenced in Canada. So we brought in September Anderson, who's a friend of the Canada Land show. She's a writer and a cultural critic in Toronto. She had an excellent episode with Jesse a few weeks back talking about black women in media. She's here to tell us whether she sympathizes with the plight of the white man. Let's do this. I'm Andre Demise. I'm Desmond Cole. And this is Canada Land. Cause. Jonathan Kay is editor-in-chief of The Walrus. Full disclosure, Desmond has written for The Walrus, and I'm currently writing an article for them, so make of that what you will. We've been hearing a lot about the silencing of white men across the country, powerful white men, and so we're counting on you to be here to break the silence today. I feel like I'm in a safe space. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Ujjal Desange, former BC Liberal Premier, got a lot of play in the past week for writing a piece about how, in his idea, 
white men across the country, especially powerful white men, are being silenced by political correctness and false accusations of racism. And, you know, you're somebody who's talked a lot about political correctness, Jonathan. So I guess to start off, how would you actually define political correctness? It's a great first question. I remember when political correctness, when that term first was popularized, uh, going back, I guess, the 80s. And... (laughs) I sound like a fogey here saying, you know, in my day, political correctness. In my day, political correctness meant something. You could lose your career. You could lose your tenure at a university. You could get fired. The idea was that if you said the wrong word, if you told the wrong joke, it could actually affect your livelihood. And I took it seriously and people took it seriously. And principled liberals started taking it seriously when they saw that their colleagues and sometimes their friends uh, were the subject of witch hunts because of fairly minor verbal transgressions. What I think has happened now is that it's become this umbrella term to describe any kind of censure or criticism you receive that sometimes can be extremely serious, like maybe you can lose your job if you're a politician or you're an academic especially. But sometimes the term political correctness is used, to my mind, in, in a fairly loose way that is almost meaningless. Like if you're on Twitter and you say something and social justice warriors jump on you and say, oh, that's racist, that's homophobic, that's this or that. That's not political correctness. That's them giving you their opinion. And they're not censoring you. To me, political correctness often is about censorship uh, and, and, and actually shutting people up. It's not about criticizing. And by the way, to my mind, the greatest misuse of the term political correctness is when people say, oh, I'm not politically correct. And you see this in the US presidential race for the Republicans. And they say, I'm not politically correct. And they use that as sort of an umbrella term to mean I can say any bad crap thing I want. So Donald Trump will say something incredibly vicious about Muslims and I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not politically correct. You you don't have to be politically correct to be judicious in the way you use language. A lot of people will say that they feel like they cannot fully participate in this conversation about Syrian refugees. They can't fully participate in the conversation about truth and reconciliation because if they come out on the wrong side of it, they're going to be branded a racist. Now, are we really that bad? Are us people of color, are we so bad that you cannot speak your minds to us? Or Actually, I'll be honest. Some of the, the, the people who are most vigorous about criticizing heterodox opinions are the people who are white. I've worked with some white males who are especially sensitive about this kind of thing, how you talk about people who aren't white or who aren't men, in part because they want to be extremely careful about how they present themselves. And maybe they have liberal guilt. Maybe it's coming from a good place. Maybe they just sincerely want to be as progressive as they can be. But when people do talk about real censorship or political correctness or even more indirect and nuanced forms of trying to suppress conservative attitudes, often the biggest censors or alleged censors are not necessarily people of color. Often it's people who look exactly like me. So hang on. I'm six foot three. I'm about 230 odd pounds. And I walk out to the grocery store and I make a concerted effort to make sure that I don't look threatening to anybody else before I go. Do you think that not being able to voice an opinion that could be taken as racist is somewhere on par with, I don't know, having to disguise myself socially to make sure I'm acceptable and don't get, say, stopped by police or followed by store staff? Actually, it's interesting you say that because you and I spoke, uh, I believe, on a panel that touched on this on TVO. Yeah. Um, and one thing I conceded is that in the context you're describing, white privilege 
absolutely definitely exists. And as I described it, white privilege, the, the, the most privileged part of it is simply waking up in the morning and saying, I represent only me. I'm just going to assume that people judge me based on who I am. If I dress like an investment banker, people are going to treat me like an investment banker. If I dress like a bum, people are going to treat me like a bum. If I talk like this, people treat me like this. You can kind of reinvent yourself every day. You can brand yourself in any way. Yeah. You kind of think of yourself as just writing on a blank slate every day. That's the truest form of white privilege. And that's something I've conceded. Um, by the way, it's not something I would have conceded 10 years ago. I probably would have been like... Rex Murphy and said, oh, what's this white privilege nonsense? It's just, <laughs> no, but I, it, I mean, it is, I mean, and that's another thing about political correctness is sometimes people will retreat to the claim of political correctness in order to avoid actually intellect, intellectually engaging with ideas they find threatening. Some Poor people. Sorry? Or people, or people that they find threatening. I mean, look, labels have that thing. I mean, and by the way, the, and both sides of the political spectrum do it. Uh, you know, I, I was in university once, and it was someone says something that's, oh, that's racist. Oh, you're a fascist. You know, you do it from the left, you do it from the right. Oh, you're just a bleeding heart. Labels are used to avoid intellectual engagement. And I think sometimes political correctness is used in that way. You say that 10 years ago, you probably would have said political correctness a lot more. What got you to start pulling back from that kind of labeling? I think it was the fact that when I got involved in journalism, I thought of myself, like a lot of people who came to the National Post, as representing this beleaguered ideological segment of Canadian society known as conservatism. You know, especially during the Chrétien years, anybody who had conservative ideas often was denigrated. Oh, all you want to do is end women's right to choose, and you're all a bunch of paleolithic socons. And then the National Post was started in 1998, and a lot of people who joined the editorial board were like, you know, we're here, we're conservative, we're proud, and we're, we're very vocal. And the newspaper itself was very vocal about taking a position, an ideological position that was then considered somewhat outré in Canadian society. Polite Canadian society then was, was quite left-wing. What's happened is the, the political needle has moved in Canada during the Harper years from left to right. And I think people who have some conservative attitudes, and I call myself a lapsed conservative, but I think even people who aren't lapsed conservatives don't feel as defensive about their attitude. When people are defensive, they feel beleaguered, they feel um, that no one else is saying this sort of things. they tend to get dogmatic and brittle. And then when people feel a little bit more confident that there's other people out there who, who think like them, they can afford to open their minds a little bit because they don't feel as, uh, as defensive. Dosange says basically that... Um there is this group of people that he calls multicultists. He says it shouldn't be multiculturalists. They're multicultists. And they try to shut down all of this debate with their claims of racism and their claims uh, uh, that you're not being politically correct enough. This is what you wrote, I think, along the same lines. You wrote, there are people in Canada who have a, quote, race obsession. And you said... Wait, that's a, what, what year did I write that? 2014. It's a piece about... Uh, don't use the word racialized was, I think, approximately the title. So you, you talked about people who have a race obsession and you talked about the, quote, diversity lobby. Who, who is this diversity lobby, Jonathan? I'm very, very curious to know because I wonder if I might actually be a part also, of it. I might yeah, be the president. Yeah, is actually. that me? <laughs> actually, OK, so it's interesting you say that because I uh, first wrote about what I called the diversity lobby when I was invited to attend an event. Uh, it was the Toronto Police, and I wrote, I wrote about it for the National Post. I could find this is going back seven or eight years, and it was an event where diversity consultants were brought in to tell organizations, including the Toronto Police Force, 
how they could make their organizations better by embracing the concept of, of diversity. And as this day went on, you know, consultants would get up, people would come up, they would talk, well, here's what we can do for your organization, here's how we can help. And again, the intentions are good, probably on both sides, the people offering the services and the people who are buying the services. But like every other industry, it has its cynical protocols. And one of those cynical protocols is that there are people in corner offices who say, oh, we have a complaint about diversity, let's bring in diversity consultants. And for 18 months, diversity consultants come in and interview people. Hundreds of thousands of dollars get spent. Maybe not a lot gets done. Those are people who, whatever the color of their skin, because by the way, a lot of these people are just, they're as white as me. These are the people who are in the diversity industry. No doubt some of them do good, but it's like every other industry. There's a mix of good. There's a mix of bad. There's a mix of genuine communication. And there's a mix of vacuous puffery. Back to this piece that you wrote, though, about the term racialized. I thought that this was really interesting because I actually thought, again, that this fit into Desange's argument about people making up stuff to kind of have a false grievance. You actually said in this piece, and I'm going to quote you here, Canada and the United States really were hotbeds of racism. You're talking about in the past. And you said that nowadays people can pursue any dream that they want to. Do you see the quest for equality and equity and civil rights then as being over? No. However, it's absolutely the case that in the age of, again, this is trite, but I'm going to say it, in the age of Barack Obama, it's not the 50s anymore. Uh, and by the way, I know nobody in this room is a big fan of Ben Carson, but the fact is... <laughs> look, I'm a big fan of... I don't call him Ben Carson. I listen to another podcast and I call him Ben Boston. If Ben Carson's life had stopped before he became a, a Republican presidential candidate, you know, this guy who was, you know, very difficult, hard scrabble upbringing... Uh, single mother, if, if I remember correctly, not a lot of money. And he grew up to become one of the most widely respected and sought after pediatric surgeons of his era. This is just not something that could have happened, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. So we do live in a different world, Canada, perhaps more than the United States. Uh, is bigotry over? Of course it's not over. Again, I don't remember precisely the article from 2014, but perhaps what I'm getting at is that it is true that people sometimes take the fact of persecution and the fact of bigotry and the fact of prejudice and from that let it define them as a cause, as a group, as a way of looking at the world, which activists to a certain extent have to do it. However, if you encourage that, then you encourage the balkanization of society because people will say, well, I'm a racialized person, so this is how I see the world or this is at least how I experience majoritarian society sex, gender, sexual orientation, eventually, and this is the broad critique of multiculturalism you sometimes hear, is that we all live in hyphenated sub-universes. Personally, I think sometimes conservatives overstate that concern. I don't think Canada is quite the caricature of multiculturalism that some people say, but that's always been the fear. Except that if people had not fought for themselves as, for example, black individuals first, Maybe there wouldn't be a Ben Carson. I mean, in that same yeah. piece, you talked about how Toni Morrison used the word racialized in 1992, and then the following year, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature. It's as if you're saying with that and with Tiger Woods and with uh, Barack Obama, 
y'all don't have as much to complain about as you maybe used to, no, but no. that doesn't change the no. fact, for example, that there's millions of men who are black in prison in the United States, sure. that the leading Republican candidate right now is talking about building a wall between the United States and Mexico and people love it. I wasn't born in the 50s and 60s, so what difference does it make to me if I still face discrimination today, but it's not as bad as it used to be? Let me step back from this and, and argue by analogy because... I have more license to use that, that term. I happen to be Jewish, mm-hmm. and I've made this critique of my own community, of, of the Jewish community. Basically, the thumbnail critique is this. There was virulent anti-Semitism throughout much of the 20th century in Western societies, including not as much as Europe, but in North America, uh, up until the 60s, maybe even the, the 70s, it was okay to be openly anti-Semitic. It was okay to have a law firm or to have a club or to have any kind of organization where you just didn't admit Jews. Like, that was just kind of something you did. And... If you look at all the prominent Jewish organizations in Canada, you know, organizations like B'nai B'rith and the Canadian Jewish Congress, which is, is now defunct but which f- was formerly ascendant, they all define their way of looking at the world through that lens. And in fact, all, many of these organizations are led by superannuated Jews who in their mind, you know, the Nazis are right around the corner and there's anti-Semitism everywhere. And, you know, B'nai B'rith, still a lot of its perceived relevance to Canadian life is it, every year it puts up this catalog of anti-Semitic incidents in Canada. Uh, and people read it and they get publicity for it. And if you look at it, you would think that it's 1938 and we were just one step away from anti-Semitic pogroms on the streets of Canada. You shouldn't try to convince the Jewish community that their lives are bounded by anti-Semitism and that uh, you know a single swastika painted on a tombstone somewhere in Canada means that they're surrounded by people who hate Jews. My argument has been that the Jewish community to a certain extent, has needed new leadership that appreciates the fact that, especially in the post-9-11 era, when it's Muslims who face much more discrimination than than Jews, we can't keep pretending that neo-Nazis is the leading problem of intolerance in Canada. It's very hard for people of color and people of indigenous origin not to have to talk about their daily struggles as far as politics and society goes without acknowledging the tremendous violence that we face. So given that we have to literally plead and sue for our lives, why then would it not be fair for us to say, yeah, we're defining ourselves through our struggle? Uh, Look, I I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. However, you know, we all have one life to lead. If you let that attitude toward society define you, it is inevitable that you're going to be limited in other ways because, again, I've seen this in the Jewish community where there are people who are so focused on and concerned with anti-Semitism um, that they miss some of the opportunities and some of the openness that you do see in Canadian Can't society. both. I mean, I think I do okay. I, I think Desmond does okay for himself. I mean, we both uh, spend a lot of time talking about the daily struggles that we face like as individuals and within communities. And I think we're doing all right. And I think a lot of the rest of us are doing all right as well. I don't think that, for example, like black, and I hate saying the black community because there are so many of us from so many different places. I don't think that we necessarily define ourselves necessarily just through racism and our daily experiences. We talk about that alongside all the great stuff that we're doing. That's what I find fascinating, Andre. And I'm glad you said that because it's almost like I hear this concern that like white people are worried that I'm going to ruin my career by talking too much about victimization and racism. And And I just think to myself... This is the way that it's always been. Yeah, if you don't yeah. insist. I, I mean, uh, actually, I'm, I'm in the corporate world and I hear that one a lot too. Like, Andre, you sure you should be talking about this stuff yeah. so much? You've got a uh, career. Actually, well, I'm going to push back on that uh, in terms of, well, largely white editors who sometimes will cynically try to burnish their own bona fides as progressives by saying, 
uh, I need more diversity on my TV show or on my radio show or my newspaper. And so I'm going to go out and I'm going to recruit more people of color. And what you sometimes see uh, is that, you know, let's say you'll go out and recruit someone who happens to be black and say, oh, you know, I'm here, I'm here for work. I'm going to write about uh, the greatest investment strategies for 2016. And you're like, yeah, um, I kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I kind of need the world to know how progressive I am. And your name's Joe Smith and... They kind of don't know how black you are. So if you write about tax well, First strategy, of all, his name is not Joel Smith. His name is going to be Javante Smith. But well, no, I, mean, no, uh, I mean, he might be, but that's a stereotype. That's racist. They, uh, but no, but you see, to my mind, that's, that's one of the, of the cynical disservices that sometimes maybe older white progressive journalists will do to younger journalists of color is try to unduly encourage them to write about their backgrounds or their communities if in some cases they do it for cynical purposes because they're trying to show the world, hey, check it out. I have this person. And you, you, you see it and it's, it's not being done for the, for the writer, it's being done for the editor. But at the same time, we can acknowledge that while that can happen, there needs to be more coverage by and for people of color people who don't identify with the gender norms that we have, people who are not maybe physically able in the way that all of okay. us are. We, need, we, need, we still need more of all okay. of those things, do we not? In, in, in media. I mean, you're an editor. No, I think we do, but it's interesting, and I'm going to snowball off something you said, the gender norms. Yeah. A uh, great example, uh, which coincides with something that we put on the Walrus uh, website yesterday. Uh, I don't know if people in this room are familiar with this movie, The Danish Girl. Uh, it happens to be about um, 1920s era Danish artist who wrote in the, in the 1930s one of the first big autobiographical texts about being a transsexual. And the movie, are, it's highly fictionalized, but it recounts this. And as you would expect, the film is seen as a transgender film because the central character is transgender. On the other hand, I believe that people who are not transgender also are going to react powerfully to this movie. So if you go to the Walrus website... There is a discussion between me and a transgender writer named Casey Plett, who's written for the, the Walrus before, and we talk about the film. And one of the things we talk about is, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but basically saying, I'm going to judge this film according to how well it focuses on the transgender experience. And to a certain extent, I had to push back and say, look, even within transgender lives, there are interactions with cisgender people, people who aren't transgender that should be shown as well. And as a result, people who are cisgender have a right to look at the film and criticize it. And it's not just people who are transgender who have a right to comment on the film. So I think it's great. You can call the film a, a transgender film. But one of the reasons I had that dialogue is because I believe that you can't just take an area of culture or an area of news and say only people who look like this or who identify this way can cover this. Jonathan, I just want to ask you one last thing. On CBC's The National recently, you said that white men are losing the culture war. <laughs> Is that actually a war you really want to win? It's probably not a war anybody wants to win, but I will say- I want to win it. <laughs> I'm out here fighting for this. I, it, losing the culture war in this narrow sense, and uh, maybe I had a bad day on Twitter that day, is that when I go uh, on social media, it is now in 2016 considered totally acceptable to go on Twitter and to be a mainstream commentator and say, oh, that is such a white man thing to say. Oh, you're so full of white man bullshit. Or, you know, oh, God, get your white male crap away from me. <laughs> and I've heard variations of this a lot. You know, I, and I say, okay, hi, I'm a white man. I, I'm, I'm so lame. 
Uh, <laughs> but no, but it's sort of like I'm kind of I'm expected to take that as a part of normal course of conversation. And I do. By the way, I'm not writing any manifestos about how like I can't sleep at night. But the fact of the matter is you can't go on Twitter and say, oh, my God, that is such an Uzbek woman thing to say. Or like, oh, my God, get your Tajik males. Like you just you don't say that because it's racist. But so I, in the narrow sense that the parlance makes it acceptable to just kind of blithely dismiss white men as fusty and stupid and humorless and bigoted, uh, yeah, we're losing the culture war. Do you think that that has something to do with the fact that people who want to say those things need to take to Twitter because they're not, say, editor of the Walrus magazine? Uh, some of these folks on Twitter are BuzzFeed columnists. Uh, you know, uh, it's not, some of them have other outlets. Some of them yeah, have a yes, cheap problem. Some, some of them. We can make yeah. specific examples about everything. But in the main, Jonathan, we're not going to have an argument here about who's dominating the big media and big channels and big voices in this country. They're not just Look, on Twitter I'm talking. I'm not going to plead poverty or disempowerment for, for white men. You're not going to have that kind of fun with me. Uh, <laughs> the audience can't see it, but I am playing the smallest violin in the whole universe. <laughs> but I, I deliberately have not played that card. It's I, uh, needless to say, to state the obvious, we're, you know, we've had, a, you know, the last couple of millennia, we've had a real good run. Uh, and, <laughs> but but it is true that when you read social media and you see that kind of conversation, you know that something has changed. Mm. And that that is what I was trying to signal on CBC mm. is that something's changed in the air and social media is uh, is the bellwether of that, I would say. Well, Jonathan, you were a good sport about coming here and speaking on behalf of your kind. <laughs> so we <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. Editor of, man. Yes, editor of The Walrus, Jonathan K. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It was fun. September Anderson is a writer, cultural critic, public intellectual, and friend of the show. I kind of just want to know what you think about this conversation that's been flying around in the country this week. This idea that in Canada, men, but particularly white men, are being silenced when it comes to important political and social issues. What have you been thinking listening to all this, September? I've been thinking that it's really laughable considering the statistics that we have about men's representations and positions of power um, overrepresented in CEO positions, hospital boards, media, owning media and being on media. So it's interesting that men are silenced um, when we think about how vocal men are and that the fact that our prime minister is a man. So I just think it's really laughable, uh, but also interesting that it's coming from a South Asian man. Why is that interesting to you that a South Asian man is talking about white men being silenced? I don't think it's shocking. I just think it's a really interesting example of internalized racism, the ways in which people of color, racialized people take these racisms and these discriminations into ourselves and then spit them back up. Okay, but now you're playing right into Ujil Aldesanja's game, right? Because you're calling him a racist. Oh, I'm not calling him a racist in the terms of him being so oppressive or all of these things. I'm saying he's internalized these racisms. I'm looking at the psychology of Ujil Aldesanja, not at who he actually is. But also when I like the what we're seeing is not new. France Fanon wrote about this many times. So many psychologists have written about this since then. This internalized self-hate. So many people do this thing. It's not unique to Ujil Dosanjh. I would really like that the discussion would be about the psychology of internalized self-hate and kind of pushing the racism discussion in Canada past Racism 101. This is a great opportunity for that. I don't really think anybody who's not a bigot believes that white men are being silenced. So where do you think this is coming from? I think it's coming from hypervisibility. I don't think it's coming from an actual shift. Like you said, we've got this 50-50 cabinet. We've got this Black Lives Matter thing. Um, 
racialized people, people of color, are working towards gaining some kind of equity in this country and those who are in power are feeling threatened, that their positions of power are being threatened, that they don't want to come down with us, that they want to stay above. You mentioned hypervisibility right now. What does that mean? Well, hypervisibility means when somebody is very visible. When you think about how much Canadian public knows about Jamaican people or even within Toronto, it's not because Jamaican people have such a high population. It's because they are so visible, mostly through criminalization, never very rarely anything positive. That's also because our culture is the wickedest. I mean, there's yeah, that too. Wickedest. <laughs> but um, that's what hypervisibility means. It doesn't mean that somebody has power. It's just that you are seeing a lot of them. Um, similar to the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. It's not that black people have so much power and we're beating down these barriers or that we have such a large number. It's just that you see a lot of us. September, I wanted to ask you about this idea of gaslighting, which you have brought up in relation to this idea that white men are being silenced. So first of all, what does that mean? It came from this play where this husband and this wife, what he would do is he would turn down the power of the gaslights. She would feel like it's getting darker and he would tell her, no, 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 it's the same. So it's a psychological game that people play where they make you question your thoughts, your your sanity and all of these other things. And this is a kind of gaslighting conversation because everybody's talking about white men being silent. Some people are saying yes. Some people say people are saying no. When you know in your heart of hearts that no, this is not it that no, we're not being silenced. No, I am not being heard. And I think that's the other flip side of the conversation where we're having um, Dusanj saying that people of color and marginalized people are being heard too much. And that's not what's going on. We're not being heard enough. Now, you engage so much on Twitter. You're always putting out a lot of really challenging ideas. And I see people coming back at you. And people often tell you that you're dominating the conversation. That you're, you're being a bully. That you're, you're so si- awful. That you're yeah. silencing uh, people. And often that relates yeah. to how you talk about who race. Who am I silencing? How you talk about gender, <laughs> right? Yeah. But in these discussions, who are the people who are saying that I'm being silenced? You tell me. No, but I'm saying, are they people who I have a position of oppression over? Are they trans people who are saying they're being silenced? Are disabled people saying they're being silenced? The people who are saying that I'm I'm silencing are the people who have more power and more voice than me. One of the things that's missing from Desange's conversation is the discussion of power. It's pretty difficult for me to silence somebody who has more power than I have. That's what's missing from so many of these discussions. Systemic power. He's feeling that white men are not being heard. A, it's not true. B, they have the systemic power. So you say systemic, and I think that's important because a lot of people would come back at you and say, September, you have a few thousand followers on Twitter and some white dude who's going after you only has 15. So don't you have power over him in that situation? 5,000 Twitter followers? (laughs) I don't get paid per follower. Um, So that follower count doesn't count. There are lots of people who have a lot of power who I have more followers than. Like I look at a lot of these journalists, a lot of these reporters, a lot of these broadcasters. I have more followers than them. That doesn't translate into power. You know what I mean? I have more power than a lot of people um, in terms of, you know what I mean, this homeless trans person who didn't graduate high school doesn't have a Canadian citizen. I do have more power than those people. But to say that I have some kind of power over a white man is uh, kind of laughable. It sounds like what you're saying is that these ideas of power, um, you use the term systemic, that they don't necessarily play out from individual to individual. It's not that you as an individual have more power over that individual. It's about how we see each other systemically. And then that comes into racism 101 where there are different kinds of racisms. 
when we are t- when you're hearing black people talking about I hate white people or any of these things, it's not saying that I hate Kevin. It's saying that this system of power, this system in hierarchy we have set up where white people are at the top and where they don't have to feel the oppression based on their skin color that is what I hate you know what I mean I have lots of white friends um, <laughs> you know what I mean it's hating the system in which it places some people at the bottom for having certain color of skin and other people at the top can I ask you something else do you ever self-censor because you're worried about this idea that somebody's going to tell you you're being unfair, you're calling me a racist and it's not true. Does that affect the way that you talk and operate? All the time. I'm actually on a Twitter break. I haven't been on Twitter in a month. And that is because of the violence that I've experienced in that space. So there are lots of times where I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to shut up. I'm not going to communicate this thought and I'm not going to speak to my oppression because I'm, I'm a human being. I'm a feeling person and... It is really hard to live in a space where so many people are so violent and aggressive towards you. How do you actually like cope with that in day-to-day life? Well, that's the funny thing. I don't really have a lot of tools for that. I'm reading and researching and learning all the time myself how to learn to navigate these spaces. That's why I'm on a Twitter break. I'm trying to figure out how can I engage in this space in a way that is safe for me. And that's what's so frustrating about this thing that Ojal Dosanjh is saying is that I myself am a victim of so much violence. I'm learning to navigate these spaces. I'm being victimized. I'm being silenced. This is a silencing. My voice has not been heard in this particular medium because of all of the violence and people actively silencing me. So it's so frustrating to hear him talk about these white men who are being silenced when it's only their voices that we are hearing. But I don't have the answer for that. I'm still trying to find and I'm still learning. Both Ujjal Dessange and Donald Trump are saying the problem with our country is political correctness. Yes. Ujjal Dessange, he would be the first person to condemn Donald Trump. He would be the first person to be like, this guy's a racist, this guy's bad news. In fact, he said at the end of this National Post piece that silencing the good white men is the reason that we have people like Donald Trump. So what, like, what's your take? He's not the first to actually say that. No. I've heard that argument before. So so what's your take on that? Because he's saying the same argument as Donald Trump that there's a problem with political correctness, but he doesn't seem to agree with anything else that Trump says. But the pot always calls the kettle black. The pot always calls the kettle black. He is saying the same things Donald Trump is saying. He's just saying it in a nicer way. All it is is Canadian style racism. That's the difference. There's an American style, which is very forward and very bold. And there's a Canadian style, which is more subversive. What's so funny was that he was on the radio this week. I was also on the radio uh engaging with his arguments on CBC and he actually talked about how he thought Canadian society was more timid, more polite, more shy about speaking its truth. You guys are agreeing with each other but But perhaps for a different reason. And to bring it back again, a broken clock is right two times a day. So, you know what I mean? That's what we're seeing but that is, one of the timidity is a problem because we're not naming Timidity is not a problem in this room apparently. (laughs) (laughs) My parents weren't born here. Um, (laughs) But you know what I mean we need to name the thing we need to call the thing by its name so that we can get past and one of the reasons why we're not we're still having these discussions in 2016 is because we won't name the thing we won't name white supremacy we won't name misogyny we won't name transphobia we won't name homophobia we need to name these things we need to call them by their proper names so that we can deal with them and move on what role do you think white males have in this kind of conversation that concerns people of color well it's the power 
that's the thing is it's the power and it's somebody who exists at the kind of acme of privilege who have no understanding of these things i can't really speak about trans issues because i am not a trans person i can't act accurately speak to a lot of social locations because i don't exist within that so you're having the people who are at the acme of power who have so much to lose by allowing other people in speaking about a thing that they have absolutely no knowledge of we do not give enough value to experiential knowledge that is something that you cannot gain. There's no way you can gain experiential knowledge. That should be so valuable, but we do not give validity and we do not place that as high as we should. I cannot tell you what it feels like to be kicked in the nuts. I do not have, <laughs> no, but I don't have the anatomy. I have no idea. Conversely, you can't tell me what it's like to give birth. A person with a uterus can't tell me what it's you mean like passing to give birth a if they've never done isn't it. the same thing? It, you know what I mean? Or one man told me that he got his chest waxed and that must be what labor feels like. <coughs> Absolutely on. not. <laughs> Come on. Absolutely not. That's not, I'll tell you no. That's not what it feels like. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought yeah. we were going to get to that point in yeah. the conversation, but actually I think we're going to have to end it yeah. there. September, uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing your experiences yes. with us. We love always having you on comments. Thanks for having me here. Okay. <laughs> Now, regarding our discussion last week with Senator Ann Cools, we got a lot of feedback, maybe more feedback than we've had for most other episodes of this program. Here's what some of you had to say. I'll be really honest. I used to hate Canterland Commons when it first came out. I was expecting something more Jesse Brown-esque and hard-hitting, but you guys have really grown on me, and this episode is a perfect example of why. In some strange roundabout way, you guys have really managed to highlight why we need Senate reform in this country so badly, and you've taken down some pretty crackpotty ideas at the same time. I don't know that the Governor General appoints senators of his or her own accord. Interesting. Also, the Senate is a high institution, and the Auditor General has no right to look at what they do. They're self-governing. Who has the right? The Governor General? who is appointed by the Queen. Does the Queen audit senators? Hi, Canada Land. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm from Edmonton. My issue with the show uh, was the eagerness with which uh, Desmond and Andre were willing to uh, kind of cast aside Cool's uh, experience and intelligence uh, on account of the fact that she happened to hold some views that aren't in alignment with the sort of broad Canadian urban progressive consensus of which the hosts and, you know, frankly myself and most of the listenership are a part. To me, it just seems a little bit uncritical for two young men to write off without any apparent consideration uh, the opinions of Cools the woman uh, on violence against women, uh, the opinions of Cools, who is a 30-year veteran of the Senate, on the Senate, or the opinions of Cools on the George Williams uprising or sit-in or whatever it is that um, you want to call it when she attended it and it happened 10 years before you know they were born. Hi, this is Noemi. I'm from Vancouver and I just wanted to say that I love commons. Except for when you're talking to people you disagree with. I first noticed this when you talked to JJ McCullough and most recently to Senator Ann Cools. You usually try your best to be polite about it during the interview, sometimes you challenge them, and that actually makes it some of the best interviews you do. But then you ruin it by following it up with this breakdown between the two of you that basically turns into a rant about the guest you just had on, and I'm not gonna lie, you kinda sound like jerks. 
You invited these people on your show, man. It's fine that you don't like them. It's fine that you don't agree with them. It's fine maybe that you even think they're a terrible person. It would even be fine with me if you turned around and said that to their face. But waiting until they're gone to talk trash about them is a really dick move. We always appreciate hearing what you have to say on this program. And if you'd like to send a voice memo, just like the ones you heard, to our producer, hit up Kevin at CanadaLandShow.com. That's our show for this week. If you'd like to continue the conversation on social media, and we love it when you do, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Canada Land Commons. It'll be the first result you find. Thanks very much to our silent producer this week, Kevin Sexton. And our not-so-silent producer, Nathan Burley. Of the music of Canada Land, of Of the music of Canada Land Commons. You can find us online at canadalandshow.com. Also, check out the newsletter, Not Sorry. You won't be sorry. Okay, I'm going to (laughs) stop. If you want to get us by email, it's desmond at canadalandshow.com. Or andre at canadalandshow.com. You can subscribe to this program wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, support us. Visit patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of CanadaLand Shortcuts will be up on Thursday, and the next episode of Commons will be up next Tuesday. I have no experience with lawn bowling because only whack-ass people bowl on lawns. What are you trying to say? I'm trying to say if you lawn bowl, you whack. What are you trying to say? What are you really trying to say? What are you trying to say about me, fans? I ain't trying to say nothing about you unless you You have to into that category. I I, I have lawn bowled. Well, if if the shoe fits. What? (laughs) (laughs) You sound really defensive, are you? (laughs) You are right there, bro. What do you think we do in Oshawa? This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.